Versailles, The Immortal, Episode 2, 1722 to 1823. As far as I, as a ghost, can remember, this is the very first time these magnificent panels from the Chinese chamber have been displayed to visitors. I had never seen them before. Admittedly, I didn't wander through Queen Marie's apartments all that often. Ah, you're here, are you? You've joined me here in the gallery of the history of the palace for another auditory amble through a century. I'm touched by your loyalty, though not surprised by it, as I am the best possible guide to tell the story of Versailles. A gamekeeper? Who would have thought? If my memory serves me correctly, we ended on a note of deep concern. King Louis XIV was dead, and his very young heir was growing up in Paris. Well, rest assured, I wasn't bored for very long. I will always remember that day in June 1722, when the little twelve-year-old king, having explored every nook and cranny of the palace and gardens, lay down in the Hall of Mirrors to admire the painted ceilings glorifying his great-grandfather. At the time, as I was floating above the young Louis XV to better observe the still child king, I figured he was trying to somehow absorb the feats of his ancestor in order to follow in his footsteps. And at Versailles, that's exactly what happened. There were to be no grand projects, noisy construction sites, or turning everything upside down. Instead, the plan was to finish what had been started. Louis XV once said, I don't like undoing what my forefathers have done, which is rather what Louis XIV did with his father's palace. At Versailles, the paths of the ancestors are followed. But that doesn't mean Louis XV didn't change anything in the palace. With the help of father and son architects, the Gabriel, the new king mainly modified the palace interiors. I reckon he wanted to add some comfort to the residential spaces, especially as the court had returned en masse to Versailles and the beloved's family was still growing. I loved visiting the apartments where the royal family, the princes of the blood, the officers and the favorite courtiers lived. Come, I'll show you my favorite spot. It doesn't exist anymore, so you have to use a bit of imagination. Follow me. We're going to take the private stairs and secret doorways. How very exciting! Right. We're now on the first floor in the King's private apartment. The King's apartment! Imagine for a moment we're back in 1750 or thereabouts. The king is sleeping in his new bedroom, which is smaller than his great-grandfather's and with a better aspect. In the morning, however, he slips into his ancestor's bed in the big official bedchamber for the king's getting-up ceremony, which is performed in public and repeated at night when he goes to bed. Yes, the king's apartment is not really private. My lord, it is time. But the new sovereign has cleverly arranged a small private place for himself, while maintaining the royal feel. But that's not what I wanted to show you. We need to go up two more floors. Ah, here's where I wanted to take you. Into the king's chamber. These rooms are nothing like the state apartments 
which were reserved for ceremonial occasions. They're on a more human scale. Here's the living room. There's the library. And another one. A bathroom, a games room, and the science rooms. Oh, yes. I learned a lot watching Louis XV explore the latest scientific inventions. He was a king who loved women, but he was also passionate about knowledge. Here we are, his majesty's laboratory. Imagine, if you will, the king practicing the subtle art of making jams, away from the eyes and constraints of the court. Can you smell the bergamot? Incredible! A musical memory has intruded on my olfactory recollection. I'm reliving my youth. Do you recognize this tune, my dear listeners? Or its composer, at least? What if I told you he was just seven years old, and it was shortly after his stay within these walls that he composed this sonata in 1764? That's right. Mozart came to Versailles. Everyone here remembers it. He spent the last two weeks of December 1763 here with his father and his sister, Nanel, who was also extremely talented. All day long, the young prodigy played for all the ladies and gentlemen. Well, mostly the ladies, as they were particularly fond of music. The Dauphine and Mesdames, Louis XV's daughters, even showered young Wolfgang with kisses as he played before the entire royal family, something Madame de Pompadour hadn't dared to do a few days earlier. Seriously, I could write an entire book about music, diplomacy, and kisses. <laughs> On the first day of 1764, the king himself appeared entranced by the chords the child let fall like rain from the chapel organ. I've always wondered if that's what prompted him to speed up the construction of the opera house, Louis XV's major contribution to our palace. What? You don't know the royal opera house? Well, let's go with some music. Here we are. The Royal Opera House on the day of its inauguration, May 16, 1770. Can you hear the crowd of guests marveling at Monsieur Gabriel's work? And the chefs bustling about to serve the meal to the 1,500 guests at the royal wedding? But of course, you didn't know, did you? On this date, May 16th, the Royal Opera was not inaugurated with a concert but with the grand feast held for the wedding of the Dauphin Louis and Marie Antoinette of Austria. The seats in the pit were covered by a floor that extended to the back of the stage. That's right. Louis XV invented the multi-purpose hall way back then. Mary Amelie, where are you? Here, behind the curtain. Come on, we must return to the dinner table. If your mother has to send for us, I bet she'll forbid us from ever seeing each other. And I bet you'd never survive if so. Do you think we'll have a wedding as wonderful as this? Well, there probably won't be as many guests, and I'm not sure I'll be able to give you as nice a wedding gift as the one the Dauphin gave to the Archduchess. 
But I promise there'll be music and dancing. Hmm? Huh? Look up there, above our heads. At all these ropes and pulleys. Those hoists and wires, you mean? <laughs> Beware of the wrath of the sailors who worked on this theater, if you're going to use forbidden words. It looks like Blaisano has installed the most beautiful mechanics in all of Europe. One day, I will sing on the stage and you will come to applaud me. I sure will. Come on. We can see all the guests from here. The king looks like he's enjoying himself. But I'm not so sure about the newlyweds. Hey, they're exactly the same age as us. How could you expect them to be enjoying themselves with all these eyes upon them? <gasps> Look at the jealous looks Madame Adelaide is shooting the poor Dauphine. Wow, she's so beautiful, Marie-Antoinette. She is. But you, you are a thousand times more beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> the Dauphin and Dauphine did not remain in those roles for long. In the final years of Louis XV's reign, my main memory of Versailles is of a place beset by court quarrels, between those who sided with Madame du Barry and those who did not, those who supported the Duke of Choiseul, and those who preferred the young Aiguillon. But on May 10, 1774, the palace witnessed the death of the king. It was the second time a king had died at Versailles and it was not a pretty sight. His grandson, who had just become Louis XVI, even had himself inoculated with smallpox, the ailment that caused Louis XV so much suffering. The king is dead! Long live the king! Who could have known that this was the last time Versailles was ever to hear that famous cry? Long live the king! Hey, where are we? And what is this memory? Sorry for my confusion. I can't see anything, and I don't understand what's happening. Sometimes, even spirits lose their way. But of course, where was my head? My eyes are blindfolded by a scarf. And we were in the middle of a game of blind man's bluff. Where, you say? At the Petit Trianon, of course. I have to confess, I spent a lot of time there, in the company of the Queen and her entourage, a group of bright, witty, yet sometimes jaded young people. But when you're a fan of the arts, like me, this perfectly proportioned little palace was a delightful place for fun adventures. Much criticism was directed at Marie-Antoinette for preferring the Trianon to Versailles and the pastimes of a favorite to the responsibilities of a queen. But I think that's unfair. She often resided at Versailles and dutifully adhered to the rules of etiquette. But she undoubtedly had an urgent need to escape. And I believe the king understood that. If you only see one thing at the Trianon, I urge you to go sit in the small theater that the Queen had Richard Mick build for her in 1780. It's a marvel. In this miraculously preserved gem, it's easy to imagine the shows in which she sometimes performed and sang, accompanied by the Chevalier de Saint-Georges and other brilliant musicians. And where was the King during all this, you might ask? 
Well, he found his own escape from the duties of a sovereign in the heart of the palace, rearranging to his liking his grandfather's small rooms so that he could indulge his own interests. Woodworking, clockmaking, locksmithing, and geography. Yes, geography. This was the heyday of the maritime expeditions, and we the 16th was passionate about them. If only you knew the imaginary journeys I went on while dreaming over his shoulder as he eagerly consulted globes and maps. He personally followed the voyages of Jean-Francois de la Pérouse, you know, the French explorer. In Versailles in the 1780s, we had front row seats to witness all the scientific innovations and discoveries of far-off horizons. I can't see anything, Papa. There are too many people. Did you spot the Mongol Fear Brothers balloon? Come here. Follow me. We'll go a little closer. Ah, I can see it. It's beside the platform where the king and his family are. What does it look like? <laughs> like a large cotton canvas pocket with painted paper stuck on. The gold of the two intertwined L's of our kings stands out on a blue background. They've lit a fire of wool and wet straw, and the balloon is beginning to inflate. You'll be able to see it above our heads in a minute. But how does the fire make it fly? Buoyancy, my child. I've explained it to you 20 times already. The difference in the density of the warm air inside the canvas and the cold air outside lifts the balloon. It's that simple. There it is! The balloon is rising! Are there people in the basket? Nope. There's a chicken, a duck, oh, and a sheep, I think, for the first flight. You know, for safety reasons. Wow! What a marvel! Humanity will remember this date, 19 September 1783, as the day we raised ourselves into the air. The next flight, I'm going to be in the basket, and I'll go all the way to America. Oh, no, you will not. <laughs> the independence of the United States has already cost France enough. They're not going to steal my daughter away from me as well. I'll do a tour of the world, then. I think the king plans to launch major explorations. All right, but let's start with a tour of the palace, hmm? To see where our aeronauts have got to. Come along, now. As for us... Let's explore this other room in the gallery of the history of the palace dedicated to the end of a reign and a regime, a period that could have marked the end of our palace. In April 1789, Versailles was the seat of a regime and a court that believed themselves to be eternal. Yet not long afterwards, the castle was deserted and the monarchy was no more. Could this have been predicted, I wonder? In this gloomy painting, or in the face of Louis XVI, immortalized in this bust. But hey, we don't have time to relive all the events of those early months of what is known as the French Revolution. But it's good to remember that it happened here in Versailles. Like all ghosts, I cannot stray from the place I'm destined to haunt. Yet, even restricted to Versailles, I could sense the times were changing. The court's spending was being roundly criticized, and the reforms of Monsieur Turgot and then Monsieur Necker were merely a light bandage on an open wound. And what about the idea of reviving the grand renovation project to transform the facade on the town side of the palace? Was this really the time to complete Louis XV's design? The king seemed blind. The queen was hated. And above all, 
the poor were suffering. So, when the procession of the Estates General was held on May 4, 1789, with the members of the Third Estate all dressed in black and gold, I left the royal apartments forever and followed every moment of the great upheaval that would reverberate around the world and which started right here where we are now. It was very close to here, in the Menu Plaisir building, that the king officially opened the Estates General and where they clashed. Also here, the deputies, when they found the door closed, took refuge in the royal tennis court to establish themselves as the National Constituent Assembly. We are here by the will of the people! Still here, the famous night of August 4th saw the abolition of feudal rights and privileges. Citizen! But it was in the Royal Opera House, which we visited virtually a few minutes ago, that the banquet that triggered the anger of Parisians was held on October 1st, 1789, prompting thousands of women to march on Versailles and shake the palace gates. What happened next is well known. On October 6th, the royal family left Versailles forever, and the palace was never home to kings again. Before revealing to you who is knocking on this door, I need to let you know that we've jumped ahead in time a little. We are now in 1797, and the palace is still standing. But inside, hardly anything remains. The revolutionary sales emptied the rooms of furniture, and the decorative items and artworks were sent to the Louvre. That's not to say there was nothing going on. I remember a visitor from Scotland, who roamed the palace for hours and hours, and managed to get a private tour of the new museum the Directorate had just created. Welcome to the special museum of the French school, Citizen McTavish. In Scotland, I'm still a subject, but I appreciate being called a citizen. Don't worry, your people too will free themselves from the monarchical yoke. If only. Thank you for allowing me to visit the museum before it opens to the public. That's quite all right. What do you think of Versailles? It's magnificent. And if I may say, I didn't think the revolution had left it standing. But of course, with no furniture or maintenance, the sadness and tragic end of those who lived here weep from the walls. You're a poet. People like you can't be relied upon to rise up and revolt. I personally have always been against those who wanted to destroy Versailles, and now that the convention has decided to maintain the palace from the Republic's purse, that should put a stop to vandalism. I think the residents of the last tyrants of France should be returned to the people to raise their morale. Nice idea. That's beautiful. Is it a Fragonard? It is, indeed. The museum displays only works by French artists in the State Apartments, the Great Gallery, and on the first floor of the North Wing. Citizen Fragonard himself oversaw the exchanges of canvases with the Louvre, which has kept the Italian art and the works of foreign painters. Yes, I visited it yesterday. It's very quiet here, so close to Paris. It has a touch of the provinces. Wow. There are sheep grazing in the Grand Canal. We have a country to build and a war to win. People have better things to do than sail around in gondolas. If you have time after the tour, go see the Conservatory of Music in the Old Opera House and the National Equestrian School in the Grand Arena. Then you'll see how we are creating the new from the old. 
from very beautiful old though. Do you know why, in the room dedicated to the men who made Versailles, there is no portrait of Napoleon? Well, that's because, contrary to popular belief, Napoleon never lived here. Of course, I have come across him with his bicorn hat within our walls. And even though he planned to convert the palace into an imperial residence, the renovations never happened. Yet, even uninhabited, the palace has never ceased to captivate the French people and inspire architects, artists, and those just out for a stroll. Uninhabited? What about us, then? Maintaining the spirit of the place is our job, after all. You're right, Madeline. But remember, it really was empty, our palace. Napoleon visited from the Trianon from time to time. Pope Pius VII came in 1805. Restoration projects were constantly being put on the long finger. Versailles survived the fall of those who built it. But what was to become of it? apart from a place for melancholy spirits to wander around. To be continued. Versailles et Moro, a fictional tale by the Palace of Versailles, written by Emmanuel Suarez and produced by Moustique Studio. Thanks to the scientific advice of Mathieu Davina, scientific director of the Palace of Versailles Research Center. Featuring the voices of Anaïs Parello, Bruce Sherfield, Véronique Belloc, David Coburn, Elise Anderson-Scotto, Yann Bean, and Tercelin Kirtley in the role of Pierre Duchamp. Discover 400 years of history at the Gallery of the History of the Palace of Versailles, refurbished in 2023, thanks to the support of Région Île-de-France for the digital content. The Palace of Versailles podcast are available on all audio platforms in the Palace app and on en.chateauversailles.fr.